0: Brunch at Walters is a great reason to swing by Navy Yard. With the purchase of an entree, you can now add bottomless Bud Light, Truly, Bloody Marys, and Mimosas for just $20. Reservations can be made at opentable.com.
1: Between the Nats, the British Open, and the NBA Finals, there will be nonstop action at Walters this
2: weekend. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: Now the pitch. Swing and a long drive. Deep left field. Way back. Going, going, and- A titanic cloud into section 102 for Will Myers. And for the Padres, they call it Slam Diego. It's their sixth Grand Slam of the year. Mateo's 0 for 2 of the game. Swings and belts. What a deep left field. Way back. Going, going, and gone. Another home run for the Padres. Jorge Mateo hits the Padres. Fifth home run of the game. It's now the Padres 24 and the Nationals 8.
0: And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, July 17th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We hope that everyone had a very nice all-star break, and now so much for that, because whatever good feeling, whatever hopeful vibes, whatever refreshed aura that existed going into Friday, was like stomped out on Friday, with it ultimately being legitimately one of the worst days in Nationals history. Heck, maybe the worst day in Nationals history. I mean, you hate to say something like that, but I don't know how else to categorize what we all went through as Nationals fans and observers on Friday. Friday afternoon, the horrendous news that Starling Castro has been placed on administrative leave by Major League Baseball due to a domestic violence allegation and all that that entails. And then on Friday night, in a development that belongs in a totally different category, we see the Nats get completely obliterated by San Diego at Nationals Park in game one of a three-game series, 24-8, the final. Justin Herbert had three touchdown passes. The 24 runs, the most runs given up by the Nats in a game since the franchise came to D.C. Mark, it is nice to see you. I hope you had a nice trip up north. Uh, We had a nice trip to Fenwick Island, and we all come back to this. uh, What a woeful day Friday ended up being.
1: Yeah, I may be heading back up to New England after this one now (laughs) because it was very relaxing. The weather was great. Not like this. It was 92 and humid all night, and uh, it was much more pleasant up there than it was watching the Nats give up 24 runs and everything else that went along with it. And honestly, the 24-8 to score... I feel like isn't even fully reflective of what actually happened in this game. It was ugly right from the get-go, the first two innings. I mean, you name it, everything went wrong. And to me, like, if that just happens on any given night, you could say, all right, well, you excuse it, you kind of throw it out the window, it just happens. Even if it happened last week, at the tail end of that brutal stretch they were in where everybody was on fumes going into the All-Star break. But for this to happen in the first game out of the break, where everybody's fresh again, And you're trying to set a good positive tone for the second half of the season. For that to happen like that in the first game back, that to me was pretty disturbing. And that's just what happened on the field. We're going to get to what happened off the field before the game as well.
0: Yeah, in fact, let's get to that right now, because this is the headline item by far. Starling Castro being placed on administrative leave, and there's a lot to unpack with all this. So the Nats on Friday announced that Castro has been put on administrative leave by Major League Baseball. This was a move made by MLB, not by the Nats. This was a move made under the Joint MLB-MLBPA Domestic Violence, Sexual Assault, and Child Abuse Policy In terms of just the pure mechanics of this, per the policy, the initial period of administrative leave can last up to seven days, although the period can also be extended. We've seen that happen recently with Trevor Bauer of the Dodgers. Now, Castro does get paid while he is on administrative leave, so I don't know that it's fair to call this a suspension. I guess maybe a suspension without pay, you know, categorize it how you want, but he is getting paid while he's out. Now, of the many things that stand out, Mark, is the way Davey Martinez spoke on Friday afternoon in a pregame press conference. Davey came out very forcefully against domestic violence, which of course he should, but Davey also did not really pledge support to Castro. And Davey said essentially that he has nothing to say to Castro until the process is complete.
4: We don't tolerate that kind of behavior. Uh, I think, you know, I'm going to support MLB and not only in this game but it- in in anything in life, you know, domestic violence
0: is is awful. There's no place for it, as far as I'm concerned. Now, look, just because someone is accused of something doesn't make that person guilty of that something. I think that's very important to maintain here. Like this doesn't mean that Starling Castro is guilty of anything. But man, um, that really stuck out. I thought the way Davy talked about this on Friday,
1: it really stuck out to me as well, Al. Especially when you compare this to what Davy said a month ago. When Castro left the team, went on the restricted list for two days, as it turned out, to deal with a family matter. Now, we can't say definitively that these two are connected in any way. They may not be. But at the time, back then, Davey, almost like unprompted, said that he was giving 100% support to Starlin. Both he and the team were doing that and that they told him, you go home, you take care of this matter. We will be here for here for you. When you come back, you have our full support. And now one month later, when this happens, the tone was completely flipped in the opposite direction. I asked him a month ago, were you aware of this allegation? And he said, absolutely not. He said, this is a totally different situation. And if he had known about this a month ago, he would have had a very different conversation with Starlin Castro. So that was the first sign of it. And then the second thing, and I asked him later on, as he again, you know, everything that he was saying, you could tell he was Hurt by this and angry by this.
0: If I would have known about this a month ago, we would have had a different conversation. I could tell you that.
1: And at the end of all that, I said, look, if MLB ultimately decides that Starlin Castro is cleared and free to return to the team, I said, would you guys welcome him back? And Davey's answer to that.
0: When that process is done, um, that'll be another conversation. But for right now, like I said, um, until that process, until he goes through that process, I really have nothing to say to him or anybody about it.
1: And that was really forceful. And I thought pretty telling. And this is not any player. This is someone that Davey has known for a while. He had him in Chicago with the Cubs. He was instrumental in helping bring him here to Washington last year. For him to be that forceful against him, and again, we'll see what this process ultimately shows in the end. But I came out of that thinking to myself, I don't see how Starling Castro plays for the Nationals again regardless of what the outcome of the investigation is. That, to me, seems like a very awkward situation if it comes to that. And I don't get the sense that Davy and I'm guessing most others high up in the organization, are not going to feel like this is someone they're going to just welcome back with open arms, even if he is exonerated.
0: The way Davey spoke, it was almost like he knows some things or he at least thinks or suspects some things. You know, now we're reading between the lines on this, but to me, you don't speak the way Davey spoke if you really think the guy you're speaking about is totally innocent in all this. Now, maybe Davey was trying to do the thing that so many others in MLB in recent years have not done, which is be sympathetic truly to domestic violence and women's issues. You know, MLB does not have a very good last few years in terms of the history when it comes to relations with. Women, you know, we had the Stephanie Epstein, Houston Astros mess of a few years ago, you know, the Jared Porter, Mets situation of just a few months ago. There have been some other things that have popped up. So, you know, I I don't know if that was behind this, but man, it really kind of reeked of, you know, Davey, I don't want to say has his mind made up, but he certainly has some thoughts on all of this. And I think it is worth injecting this into the conversation too. So you referenced when Starling Castro went on the restricted list. So he only went on the restricted list for a few days, June 16th to the 18th. He then got activated off that. Davey in a press conference, the one you referenced, we talked about having Castro support. He said that Castro had some family matters to which he needed to attend. But there was sort of an air of mystery to that where Castro goes on this restricted list. And, you know, we weren't necessarily said like, you know, his, his uh, I don't know, his mom's not doing well or his dad's not doing well. It was kind of like, no one really said what the reason was. And look, it's not our business necessarily what the reason is, but it was kind of, uh, it, it just it stuck out in that way, that nobody really knew what was happening here. And then all of a sudden he was back after just a few days. There's also this too, and I don't know if this is relevant or not, but you know what? You come across these things and something like this happens. January 2012, we learned that Starling Castro, then with the Cubs, was accused of sexual assault in 2011. Now, no charges were ever filed, but you know, you feel like maybe that's somewhat relevant to all of this. Let me ask you this. When it comes to MLB investigating this, who actually is doing the investigating? Because obviously you have the legal aspect of all this and the authorities are looking into things. Is this the commissioner's office that investigates this? Is this the commissioner's office in conjunction with the police? Like, How exactly does MLB itself investigate something like this?
1: So my understanding is MLB has a department of investigations, that it's its own Department, and it is former police, former detectives, other law enforcement officials that go to work directly for MLB. This is not truly, at the moment, as far as I know, a legal matter in terms of, you know, are the police investigating? Now, maybe they are separately from that, but we have seen in cases for MLB where there is the legal matter that takes place with local police and then ultimately maybe a court system. And then there is separately an MLB Department of Investigations, and they are not beholden to whatever the police would determine. The police could ultimately not file charges against him, but MLB, through its own investigation, could still say, we found enough evidence to suspend you under violation of the collectively bargained domestic violence program that both the league and the union have agreed to. So they are sort of independent of all that, but it's run by an investigations department that includes a lot of veteran law enforcement people. Now, what I can also tell you based on other situations we've seen here over the years is that that group takes its time to look into everything. Things don't usually move very quickly with that. So while he is allowed to be on administrative leave for seven days, do not be surprised at all. If this drags on beyond that and that there is not a resolution that quickly, we've already seen that with Trevor Bauer. We've seen how long it took MLB to deal with Jared Porter, Mickey Calloway. These things took a long time. It's hard to say for certain in this case what it's going to be, but my hunch based on what we've seen in the past is that there's not going to be a very quick resolution to this. So even if ultimately he's proven innocent and they do not punish him in any way, it still may be a while until... We know what his status is, and he'd even be eligible to come back to them.
0: Yeah, I think the seven days completely gets extended. I I think it's 50-50 that he ever plays for the Nats again. You know, you think about the current climate that we're in. I mean, I mentioned how MLB has dealt with these women's issues lately. For those listening who watch MLB Network, MLB Network has made much more of a concerted effort over the last few months to have more female voices on the air. This is a sensitive time with this stuff. And look, it should always be a sensitive time for this stuff. But Starling Castro, this is not a good time to be accused of something like this. And, you know, that's the thing. That's what's so tricky about this thing. He could be totally innocent. You know, talking about this stuff in a sports way is always so challenging because we have no idea, you know, and it could be that he's innocent. And, you know, we've learned over the years, especially with something like the Duke lacrosse thing, people can get accused of stuff. And you may think you know that they're guilty, but that's not the case. On the flip side, though, we know, especially with things like domestic violence, so many real domestic violence cases never get pursued, never get reported. These things are underreported. And so you have to take this stuff seriously. And you just got to hope that the truth ultimately is uncovered and, and that justice is served. I do think, though, for MLB, and the NFL has certainly dealt with this, man, you're a pro sports league. It's got to be so tricky to investigate these things. I mean, it's hard enough for law enforcement to get to the bottom of these situations. How it is that pro sports leagues think that they can find the truth in these situations where so often there's gray area, man, and there's things like, well, he says this, and she says that, and what exactly did happen here? And, you know, especially if it's a, a husband and wife, you know, maybe the wife all of a sudden doesn't want the husband to get in trouble and jeopardize his career. So the wife starts to cover for the husband, even though the husband hit the wife. And it's like, how do you figure out the truth in these situations? It feels like a near impossibility.
1: It is very difficult. You're right. And we've seen cases over the years that have gone both ways in this. We've seen players exonerated. We've seen players and executives and coaches who get suspended long term by MLB things that are found. I think the climate now is much more attention on it. I think if nothing else, what we have come to understand in recent years is that you have to take these things seriously and that while, yes, you do owe it to everyone involved to seek out the truth, that we also know that you have to trust women who come forward with this kind of information and not blow that off as insignificant and that you have to believe women at their Uh, at the face value of what they're telling you and then do your due diligence to get to the bottom of it. But, you know, again, even after all this, ultimately the nationals may find themselves having to make a decision. And everything that we've heard from them over the last several years is from an ownership level, from Mike Rizzo, the GM, from Davey, from everyone, is that they have zero tolerance for anything like this. And if they are going to stay true to that, then I think if they have even a shred of evidence that Starling Castro did something inappropriate, that I don't expect them to just let that go and bring him back. And I know from a baseball standpoint, it may be bad for the team to lose him because he had, let's admit, he was hitting really well, hitting 407 since he came back from that restricted list stay. But my sense is that this is an organization that will place that second and that first and foremost, they will make a decision based on what they find out about him and what they believe is best for the organization.
0: So you just hit on an aspect of this that is just remarkable, and that is the timing. The timing of Castro going on administrative leave, and this is remarkable on two levels. So A is what you said, the guys turned to season around. We've been waiting on this like the whole year, and over the last month or so, Starling Castro has been arguably the Nats' most productive batter. Like, he's done a really good job. He raised his OPS for the season by 100 points from the start of games on June 8th through the end of the pre-All-Star break portion of the season. The guy who all he did was strike out and hit the occasional single was all of a sudden lacing doubles. You know, Starling Castro leads the Nats in doubles on the season. There was a lot to like with the job that he was doing offensively, and now it may be that his season is over. The other remarkable aspect of all this, and this is really incredible when you think about it, the same day on which Starling Castro goes on administrative leave, we have the return of FP Santangelo as the in-game analyst for Masson's telecast of Nationals games. So most people listening are aware of the FP situation, but it was back in May that we had multiple reports that FP had been accused of sexual misconduct. We had kind of an odd week or so in which he would be on the telecast and off the telecast and back on the telecast. Ultimately, he got removed. He was off the last two months. We saw, of course, Justin Maxwell serve the bulk of FP's duties. Now, FP was accused of sexual misconduct. He denied what he was accused of. He gave a statement, in fact, at one point to The Athletic. And an investigation was conducted, and it turns out it was kind of a joint investigation, Masson and MLB, and Masson put out a statement on Friday night, quote, the commissioner's office and Masson have reviewed the anonymous claim made against F.P. Santangelo. MLB and Masson have found no evidence that Mr. Santangelo violated the terms of his contractor agreement, league or network regulations, nor is there more evidence currently available to us to collect And quote, and so FP was on the telecast on Friday night. Now, to me, it's like the Castro thing. We don't know who's guilty and innocent. I mean, I think all you can hope is that the truth has been reflected in the outcome. And that FP is innocent, that these things were not perpetrated by him, and that he deserves to be back on the telecast. Just like with Starlin Castro. All you can hope is that if he's guilty, we never see him again. And if he's innocent, that he's back playing again. But how you find the truth I just think is so challenging and I think all you can hope for is that the truth is uncovered and obviously you hope for whatever victims exist in this circumstance do better do well and are, are properly taken care of but it, it's it's a terrible situation it, it's really so bad on so many levels you hate to see something like this so we'll make the sharp turn into baseball here which is not an easy transition to make but that's why I know you guys listen to this podcast and While we're talking third base, so what now for the Nats at third base? Will they activate Jordy Mercer from the 10-day injured list on Friday? That was good to see. He'd been on that uh, since July 2nd, retroactive to the first with the strained right quadriceps. And Jordy Mercer was the Nats starting third baseman on Friday night. He was a number six batter, too. which tells you something about the state of the lineup. Although Mercer actually had a decent game offensively, a couple of hits and a walk. But moving forward, Mark, at third base, what is the plan here? Because... If the Nets are going to be without Castro for a while, what are we looking at here in terms of of the third base position?
1: Well, Davey named three different players who he could see playing third base at times, and that's Mercer, it's Josh Harrison, and it's Alcides Escobar. Now, here's the problem. At the moment, and we saw this on Friday night, when Kyle Schwarber is on the I.L., as he still is, and he's going to be for a while as he recovers from his hamstring strain, somebody's got to play left field. That someone has been Josh Harrison for the most part. Because their backup outfielders, Gerardo Parr and Gadiel Hernandez, have not been especially productive. And so if Harrison is your left fielder, that means Alcides Escobar is your second baseman. And so there is no one else to play third except for Jordy Mercer. So these are all intertwined and connected, and they've got to get healthier in order to even be in a position where somebody else could. I think in their ideal world, based on anybody who's already in the organization, Schwarber comes back and plays left. Harrison can play third and Escobar can play second with Mercer maybe filling in here and there. I don't think they view Mercer as a long-term answer there at all. But the timing of this of course is fascinating because the trade deadline is 2 weeks away. And before any of this we were talking about would they go get another bat and if they did what would be the position? I think we've said all along third base is one that they would look at even when Starling Castro is on the active roster whether third base or even second base. Well, this to me only intensifies that need. If the team is in the race at the end of the month and they believe that they can go for it, I think they have to go look for somebody who can help out there. It doesn't necessarily have to be Chris Bryant. doesn't have to be a star player making a lot of money who's going to play every day at third base, but somebody who can help out in that rotation because they are stretched as thin as possible right now, and it's not a good situation. If they're going into this... For the next two weeks and every day, it's Harrison and left, Escobar at second, Mercer at third. That is not a deep lineup that's going to help them win a lot of games.
0: We've got time to get to the whole trade deadline thing. It was interesting, though. There was a lot out there on Friday about the Nationals being buyers. Uh, John Heyman had some stuff on the Nats being in on uh, Chris Bryan. Understand, this loss on Friday night drops the Nats to 42-48, and 48, six games below five hundred with a run differential now of minus 31 on the season. The Nats, to me, have to earn the right to be buyers. Like, if the Nats don't play better, Mike Rizzo should not be buying. Uh, The Nats should be selling. So we'll see where they end up being. But, like, when it comes to the Cubs, the Cubs very clearly are sellers. The Nats' record is worse than that of the Cubs. The Nats' run differential is worse than that of the Cubs. I mean, just something to be thinking about here as we approach the deadline. For Saison and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park. And make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza. Just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you.
4: Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small-town charm and big-league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. Visit BigTrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July.
2: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
3: That's it. He's made the signal to the bullpen. Yeah, I, I'm saying it, you had to be out, run out of patience here. I mean, the, the 21 inning scoreless streak, but he's just not been the same the last three times out. Not even close. He's going to leave getting only four outs. Davey Martinez did not look happy as he took the baseball there. So Fetty departs here at the top of the second inning. Three walks loading the bases.
0: We've put it off long enough. The Nationals pitching on Friday night was some kind of bad. Okay. You you know there's bad, and then there is that like special kind of bad, that supreme level of bad. And that's where the Nats were at from a pitching standpoint on Friday night. So much for the rested bullpen, so much for the rotation hitting the ground running, so much for length from your starter. It starts with the starter. Eric Fetty was brutal on Friday night. He ends up being charged with six runs in one and a third innings. He could not throw a strike to save his life. He gives up three singles and four walks versus one strikeout. He finishes with 29 strikes versus 28 balls. He gets pulled from the game with the bases loaded and one out in the top of the second. And you could tell when he got pulled that he was like, dude, why are you pulling me? And it's like, dude, this is why you were a mess out there. He was so bad, and it's so unfortunate because we were throwing bouquets at Fetty not that long ago, and the truth is, since he went on the 10-day injured list with the left oblique strain, he's not been the same pitcher. This was his third outing since coming off the IL. He's been mediocre to now really bad in each of those three outings, and Mark, he could not throw a strike at all in this performance on Friday night. This was really, really bad.
1: It was agonizing to watch out. Now I'll throw him a little bone and say that in the first inning, it was not all his fault. He was giving up some of the weakest contact you will ever get, and still not getting hitters out. There were two little nubbers down the third base line that turned into hits. That Mercer tried to make the bare hand play and just couldn't get the throw to first in time. It's one of those that you wonder, boy, would a better third baseman have made those plays? I don't know if Castro would have or not, but maybe there was a chance at it. There was potentially a double play ball off Fernando Tatis's bat that they just didn't turn it quick enough. That could have changed the entire inning because it could be two outs and nobody on, and instead he's on base. And then there was the stolen bases. We haven't even gotten to the fact that Rene Rivera was the catcher for this game, fresh off the streets. And in his first game, he ends up allowing three stolen bases in the first inning plus a throwing error. Tatis steals second on a pitch out. They had him dead to rights. And Rivera throws the ball in the center field and lets the runner go to third. And then later in the inning, first and third, the old double steal, just like in Little League. Runner from first takes off. What do you do if you're the catcher? Hold the ball. (laughs) Don't throw it down unless you know you're going to get him. He throws the ball down to Escobar, who's not even covering second. He's behind second. Didn't even move, come up. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to throw down and cut it off and throw back to the plate. No, threw it behind the base, allowing the runner on third, Tommy Fan just essentially waltz home.
3: Escobar didn't come forward. He was behind the bag at second, making for a much longer throw when he took it to get the throw back to the plate. And the play at the plate was not close. That was such a Little League play. That was an embarrassing
1: play. So Fetty deserved better in the first inning. And yet he takes them out again for the second in what's now a tie game, 3-3, and walks the first batter and then walks the third batter and walks the fourth batter. And I cannot blame Davey at all for making the move at that point. He had thrown at that point, 57 pitches to 11 batters. That was ugly. And the moment he takes him out of the game, you know, it's going to be a scramble just to get through the rest of this game. And that's exactly what it was. And it was a mess from that point on.
0: It was atrocious. For Fetty now, since coming off the IL, 7-4 loss at the Padres July 6th. I thought Fetty was better than this line indicated, but he still wasn't good. Six runs, four in the third innings. 3-1 loss. At San Francisco, July 11th, Fetty, three runs, five innings. And now in the embarrassment, that was this 24-8 loss to the Padres at Nats Park. Fetty, six runs in one and a third innings. You mentioned Rene Rivera. We might as well hit on that now. So the Nationals, who have had some kind of season at the catcher position, now can add another chapter to the catcher position. And that is the chapter of Rene Rivera who sounds like a villain in a soap opera. He sounds like he should be on Days of Our Lives, Rene Rivera. But the Nats on Friday announced having agreed on a major league contract with Rene Rivera. He was a free agent. This season is Renee Rivera's age 37 season. The Nats, of course, have Jan Gomes on the 10-day IL with an oblique strain, have backup catcher slash backup second baseman Alex Avila on the 10-day IL with bilateral calf strains, And so instead of leaning on, I don't know, someone in their farm system or someone who they already had, you know, they had this kid Jackson Reitz up at the major league level. They optioned him back to AAA Rochester instead of going with Tres Pereira. And another sign of just how bad things are right now with the Nats farm system, just like having to trade for Alcides Escobar, the Nats have to sign Rene Rivera, again, age 37 season. The Nats are his 10th major league team, and he's out there as the Nats starting catcher. On Friday night, and to your point, the Nats were a defensive mess, and it wasn't all Rivera's fault. But you know, he had that throwing error in that three-run first inning. The Nats defensively were were uh, were really bad too on Friday night. That Yadiel Hernandez overrun of the fly ball in left field—I mean, I mean, that's amateur hour. And I know Yadiel isn't exactly Alex Gordon out there, but still, I mean, bro, make the catch. You know, Josh Harrison had some bad defensive moments. It was just—it was sloppy all the way around. But yeah, man. How many different catchers are we up to now for the Nats this season? It feels like it's like 12 at this point.
1: It's only six, believe it or not. (laughs) But that matches the club record for one season of catchers. That was 2012. And a couple of things to take away from this. Number one, I don't think they believe Jan Gomes is coming back very soon. That that's an oblique that's going to keep him out for a while. He has not attempted to do much of anything yet. He's just getting treatment. So that's bad because we've talked about, I think I even said it last week, that Trey Turner is the most valuable player on the team. But next on the list of who they could least afford to lose, I think, was Jan Gomes. And I think we saw evidence of that in this game tonight, just how much he is critical to this team's success. So that's number one. I don't think we're going to see Gomes for a while. Number two is that Alex Avila, and it's now how many days? It's been two weeks, 15 days, since he strained both of his calves while playing second base, still isn't ready to return. I thought he'd be back for this game and maybe he's still only a day or two away, he did take BP and he was participating in everything else, but that the Nationals felt like Avila wasn't available yet, Gomes is going to be out for a while, and they didn't even trust Barrera and Reitz to hold down the fort for one or two days, whatever it is, until Avila comes back, that to me says a lot about how they feel about things, that they would just go pick up a guy off the street, put him behind the plate, In the first game out of the All-Star break, and I'm guessing we may see more of him. It may be Rivera and Avila moving forward for a while until Gomes comes back. That's going to have a dramatic effect, a negative effect on this team. They are going to miss Jan Gomes as long as he is out.
0: It's such an indictment of their farm system that they do this, okay? I mean, I don't care what they say about their farm system, that they're having to do things like this, trade cash considerations for Escobar, sign Rene Rivera instead of promoting from within, going to someone in the farm system. It tells you everything you need to know about what they truly think about that system. And we've talked about this with the pitching, the fact that they have to summon guys in their 30s who are veterans as opposed to guys in their 20s who have promised, you know, that it's the Paulo Espinos and Jeffrey Rodriguez's being called up as opposed to guys, you know, with more upside. Like, that tells you everything we need to know about the state of the system. And then with the bullpen, I mean, look, we're not going to spend a ton of time on what each guy did here, but the bullpen was just wretched. Six snatch relievers in this game combined to allow, cover your ears, 18 runs, 15 earned in seven and two-thirds innings. Bill Madden of the New York Post has a great line when it comes to bullpen usage these days. He says, it's the constant search for the guy who doesn't have it. The idea being that all these guys aren't going to all have it on a given night. Well, none of these guys had it in this game on Friday night. Andres Machado, terrible. Paulo Espino, as much as I hate to say it, terrible. Gives up a two-out grand slam to the first battery face's Will Myers on a bomb to left field for a 10-3 Padres lead. And then Espino gives up more runs as his outing goes on. You know, the two-out triple by Jake Cronenworth. Uh, Another run in the fourth inning. Gives up back-to-back doubles. Sam Clay, who's always good to give up a run, gives up a run in the top of the fifth on a first-pitch two-out solo shot by Jake Cronenworth, who had a huge night. Wander Suero. We talk about good Suero, bad Suero. Suero was awful in this game. Six runs, three earned In one-third of an inning, we talked about Fetty basically throwing one strike for every ball. Wander Suero had more balls than strikes. He threw 12 strikes versus 16 balls. Suero was really bad. Suero may have been worse than Fetty. I'm not sure. That would be a good essay question to ask someone. But Suero just getting tattooed in that six-run, six-inning. Ryan Harper officially tossed one and two-thirds scoreless innings, but he still put guys on base and allowed inherited runners to score. And then Davies' favorite, Jeffrey Rodriguez, he gives up four runs in the top of the eighth inning and then gives up a solo homer for good measure in the top of the ninth. It was amazing, Mark. Not a single one of these guys had it on Friday night. Every single one of them struggled to some extent.
1: So I was going to actually ask you, what was the worst half inning of this game? And I'm going to give you three choices. And I think there's a compelling argument for any of them. Was it the top of the first with all the stolen bases and the little dinks and doinks and putting yourself in a 3 nothing hole. Was it the second inning in which they gave up seven runs? Fetty gets pulled. Machado comes in, can't get out of the inning. Espino has to come in, gives up the grand slam. And by the way, Victor Robles also had to come out of the game due to dizziness, possibly dehydration on a brutally hot and humid night. So there's that. Or maybe it's the sixth where Wanda Suero enters and goes, Homer, walk, Homer, line out, walk, air. That was the Yadiel Hernandez, just complete botched of a play. Two-run single, and then the infield single, I believe, at the end of all that. I've, I can't even read my own chicken scratches. I mean, that was such a disaster of an inning. There were so many disasters of innings in this game. I'd never seen anything like it. The only inning they didn't give up a run was the seventh. That may be the first time I've ever seen that. A team scored an eight out of nine innings. And Trent Grisham, the Padres' leadoff hitter, came up to bat, Seven times in eight innings. I don't believe I've ever seen that before. That is staggering.
0: The Padres are frightening. And it's not just Fernando Tatis and Manny Machado, it's Jake Cronenworth. It is Tommy Pham. You know, Eric Hosmer can still hit. The Padres are loaded, man. And they're loaded in ways that I'm not sure everyone is understanding. The Padres have steamrolled the Nationals here just like we saw the Giants steamroll the Nationals, just like we saw the Dodgers steamroll the Nationals. The Nats are getting totally outclassed over the last few weeks by the best division of baseball, the National League West. I got one more thing from this game I want to get your take on, because this, I got to tell you, this bothers me, but I want to hear the team side of this before I go all in on this. Why didn't Max Scherzer start this game? He's your ace. He's your lone dependable starting pitcher. You know, the way you want to set things up, obviously, is for Max to make as many starts as possible post the All-Star break. I know he started Tuesday night, but he only threw one inning. Why is Max not starting until Sunday? What's the deal with that?
1: Nobody directly asked that question, and maybe we should have, but obviously there was a lot of stuff going on pregame today that demanded a little more attention. Interpreting it, and based on what I've seen in the past, I think it was what you just said. He was in the All-Star game, started it, didn't really get his break. And it's sort of like a little, both a, a courtesy to a veteran, but also maybe understanding that he may need a couple extra days to recover from all that rather than just throw him out there in the first game he's going to start on Sunday. I get it. I don't have a huge problem with that. You wish though that that was, if they were going to do that, they were doing it when Steven Strasburg was healthy, when Patrick Corbin was pitching well, when John Lester was pitching well, that they had a couple other good quality starters to get you out of the gates hot before you then go to Scherzer. I feel like that happened a couple years ago, maybe, where Max pitched on Sunday, but they had Strasburg to start the first game out. In this case, it's Fetty, who, at everyone else who's available, is probably the best option, but that says so much about the state of the rotation right now that Fetty was the best option for the first game out of the break with Corbin after him, that if they weren't willing to push Max To have him in the first game out, they wanted to give him a little bit of a break after the All-Star game, that this is who their alternative was. That doesn't speak well about the state of the rotation right now.
0: It doesn't. And look, Max was worthy of being an All-Star. It was great to see him start on Tuesday night. But I wonder, given the state of the Nats season, given the state of the rotation, given the uncertainty in the rotation beyond Max, if maybe you you you, you could have said to him, look, man, we love you. It's great you got this All-Star nod, but we need you and as many starts as possible after the break, would it kill you not to pitch on Tuesday night? If you're pitching on Tuesday night, is going to mean we can't start you until game three against the Padres, and that conceivably could cost you a start post the break. And maybe that you not starting an extra game ends up costing us a postseason spot. Is it really worth it for you to throw one inning on Tuesday night when you've pitched in a bunch of these in the past? And obviously, you'd be respectful towards him when you're saying this. You don't say it like I'm saying it right now. But, you know, Max Scherzer gets paid by the Nationals, okay? Tuesday night was an exhibition game. It doesn't matter what happened on Tuesday night. We know how particular Max is about he's got to have his proper rest, and if he doesn't have his proper rest, then he's not only going to push himself so far. I don't know, man, especially with the way this game played out on Friday night. I'm kind of like, why isn't the horse out there? Why isn't the ace out there starting this game? one? And it's against, obviously, a really good team of the Padres, too. You, you, you weren't facing the Pirates on Friday night.
1: Yeah, although let's remember what happened the last time Max faced the podcast. Yeah, face. That's true. <laughs> it was great for three innings. The fourth inning, not so much. Yeah, look, I get, I get what you're saying, and and look, the um, Jacob Degrom did not pitch in the All Star game, and you know they decided, and he he decided, and the Mets decided that that wasn't worth it. I don't know the mechanics of it. If you have to be able to prove an injury or or some other ailment or reason that you can't. You know, he didn't pitch over the weekend, so he was available. It's not like one of those, you started the last game of the first half, so you therefore you're not in the All-Star game. It's a tough call. I can see both sides of it. I don't fault the Nets for doing it. But like I said, I think I would feel better about it if they had a healthy Strasburg and a, an effective Corbin to start those first two games. They need to maximize everything they get from Max Scherzer the rest of the way if they're going to have a shot at this. And by delaying it a couple of days, obviously they didn't maximize him.
0: Max is not starting until game three. Corbin is starting game two. Max isn't going until the Sunday game. Hey, guys, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. It's great to be in the midst of baseball season. Nothing like watching a game. Great weather, cold drink, and a little action on FanDuel Sportsbook. If you have never bet on baseball before, now is the perfect time to give that a shot. FanDuel is letting new users swing for the fences risk-free as you'll get up to $1,000 back for an even bigger win all season long. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. It's got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same game parlay and always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code chat to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook. Promo code chat and a big series in the National League Central continues on Saturday night. Milwaukee at Cincinnati at 710. The Brewers ace is pitching Brandon Woodruff. He is an ERA of 206 on the season. We will ride the brew crew.
4: 21 plus and present in present, Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager only for risk free bet. Refund issued as is non withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at com. Gambling problem, call 1 800 522 4700 in Colorado. 1 800 bets off in Iowa. One hundred nine, with it indiana one 270 7117 for confidential help in Michigan. One hundred gambler New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia, Tennessee, 1-800-889-9789. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net.
0: It's been a very gloomy installment of the Nash Chat Podcast. We planned a while ago to do this on this show. Who knew that, uh, you know, everything was going to get turned upside down, but we still would like to do this, and that is the top five moments – of the first half of the season, the top five moments of the pre-All-Star break portion of the season. Now, you've put together yours. I've put together mine. You go first.
1: My number five, and I'm guessing you don't have this one, but this was a personal favorite of mine. Alex Avila chasing down Travis Jankowski in the rundown in Philly in the big ninth inning to help win
3: a game two to one. Hudson Cummings said, Chankowski leading off second. The kick in the pitch, sliders in the dirt, and the runners caught between second and third. Avila running at him. Avila still running at him. Avila still running at him. He's going to tag him out. What a play by the Nationals' catcher, Alex Avila. It's one
1: kind of fluky play in a, but what I thought was a very good game and an important win for them. And as we talked about at the time, I, I just I love plays like that. Seeing a catcher be athletic get a guy in a rundown, don't even, you know, just take him, take care of it all yourself. In a big moment in a one run game in the ninth inning, I really enjoyed that. It may not, you know, rank as one of the greatest moments of the season to date, but that was one that stood out in my mind. It's just like a, I love to see a play like that. And it meant a lot to the team and and to them winning that game.
0: So that was my number five, the Alex Avila play. No Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> because, see, to me, I always hate it when people do these lists of the best moments and they don't make it a moment. They make it like a game or like an achievement. I'm like, no, moment. A moment is a moment. That, to me, was a great moment, that play by Avila. That was such a clutch play. That was not a big spot, in a big game. If you remember the particulars of that inning, things weren't looking so good. Avila makes that play And like if there is such a thing as momentum, that night captured it because the momentum swung and the game was over like 30 seconds later. And the Nats got out of it. The bullpen sealed the deal. And the Nats won that game. That was an excellent play by Alex Avila. So I'm with you on that.
1: All right. We're thinking alike. I like this.
0: Idiots seldom differ.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right. Number four. uh, This is a a moment and a big one. It was Kyle Schwarber's first walk off homer against the Diamondbacks. I believe that was the uh, deep into the night towering blast
3: now the kick in the pitch <laughs>
1: swing it along
3: one to right way back going 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 goodbye way up there in the second deck
1: he hit another one on another friday night might have been the next friday night or two friday nights later but to me the first one really stood out the first true bomb. and this is before he went off in june this was earlier in the season that was a feel-good moment for him and for the team
0: yeah, I seriously consider that. I went with the Jan Gomes walk-off single of Edwin Diaz. The one nothing win over the Mets, Nats Park, in another Friday night game. Here's
3: the 2-2 for Diaz. The Gomes
0: swung on line drive. June eighteenth. Boy, up until this Friday night, the Nats had done really well in these Friday night spots. But that was a great game. That was a scoreless duel. Jan Gomes, the walk-off single off Diaz, bottom of the ninth. That was also the game in which Eric Fetty had seven scoreless innings. Boy, does that seem like 10 years ago now? But Fetty, remember, he was rolling. That's the game that got him to 20 consecutive scoreless innings. I really enjoyed watching that game. I love games like that and to see Gomes come through like that off Diaz, the Mets fan can't stand Edwin Diaz because he's blown a bunch of these games over the years. That to me was a moment that stood out.
1: Yeah, I like that one too. That was a good game and an important game for them
0: against a division rival. So I like that one.
1: All right, my number three, you knew I had to get a Paolo Espino game in there somewhere. It was a question of which one. And I'm going with the first career save.
3: Paolo Espino notches a save here in the bottom of the ninth inning. And the Nationals, who came back three different times in this game, have beaten the Phillies this afternoon.
1: Not the win, not the Miss Iowa game, replacing Strasburg. I'm going for the save in Philly because that was such a crazy game where nothing was going right. The pitching was awful. They somehow get to the ninth with a chance to win. And who comes in to save the day? Palo Espino first career save such a that moment of like he'll just do whatever they ask of him and the fact that Davey trusted him above all else to close out a game like that a wild game Palo's first career save is my number three moment
0: so I have that game but a different moment from it and that's coming up later in my countdown my number three was the Trey Turner triple for the cycle in the 15-6 win over Tampa Bay at Nats Park on June 30th. Turner is the all-time Nationals leader in triples
2: but he has just won this year that was on June 15th against the Pirates he's due for a triples binge the 1-1 swing a line drive to right
3: toward the corner chasing Margot he can't get it it's one hop off the fence Turner racing for second he's going for three the relay throw from Brasso the head first dive he is safe and Turner is hit
0: So, of course, this was Trey's 28th birthday. He goes out there and he hits for the cycle in spectacular fashion. Homer triple, double, single, two stolen bases as well. Now, I would have this higher, but the problem is he got hurt on the triple. So I feel like that's kind of a mitigating factor in all of this, that he ended up jamming his left middle finger, sliding into third base, and then uh, missing that next series against the Dodgers, right? He missed all four games of that series. So it's like, OK, that was a great moment, but it actually had something bad attached to it. But that still was maybe the best single game performance by a NAT so far this year. It's certainly on the short list. Tremendous job by Trey. And the triple, it's such a rare play in baseball, but it's such an exciting play in baseball. And the fact that he needed the triple, he hits the ball into the right field corner. You know he's going to go for the triple and he gets it. That was a great moment against obviously a really good team in Tampa Bay.
1: Yeah, it was and the reason I didn't include it is because of what you said because he got hurt Yeah, and it wound up maybe costing them in some way. But no, I, in the moment I loved it. It was fantastic like you said. It was a third career triple. By the way, we didn't even mention this fact. Jake Cronenworth hit for the cycle yes. in this game. <laughs> and did it by the 6th inning. So, let's just, you know, add one more indignity to the night. So, but no, that was a great individual performance and for Trey to do that, that was his signature moment certainly of the season to date. My number two is a great individual performance and also under circumstances that were a little extraordinary, and that is Max Scherzer shutting out the Marlins while his wife, Erica, was on her way to the hospital to give birth to their third
3: child. Scherzer over the head into the wine, the 2-2 pitch. Swing and a miss! Blows it away with a fastball! 96 miles an hour! Strikeout number seven of the game. Number 2829. Now three behind Mickey Lowledge for 20th all time.
1: The son was born, I believe, two hours after he threw the final pitch of that game. We didn't even get to talk to him. He went straight to the hospital. We didn't know that was going on. And I just love about how Max is so just nondescript about it. Like, of course, this is what you do. It's not just that, yeah, I gotta go pitch today and then maybe I need to go make sure I get to the hospital in time. No, I'm gonna go throw a shutout and then go have a baby. And the fact that Erica, this tells you everything you know about her, she mapped it all out. She knew what day he was going to pitch, and they scheduled the C-section for that day after a day game. That is classic Erica Scherzer. It's a great relationship with the two of them. I just—I loved that moment finding out after the fact that, oh, he didn't just throw a shutout. He did so while knowing his wife was about to give birth.
0: That was a great day. I do not have that on my list. I did want to work that into the list, but I actually had too many contenders for it. But that, that was tremendous. That That's one of those all-time Chuck Norris-like max days that he put forth on that day against the Marlins. My number two is the Baby Shark double at Nats Park in another game against the Mets. 5-2 win over the Mets on Sunday afternoon, June 20th. Here's the pitch.
3: Swing and a line drive, base hit left
0: And what's tricky about this game is this was the game in which Kyle Schwarber hit three home runs. So I feel bad not including any one of those homers from Kyle in this game. But you tell me, you were at Nats Park. It sure seemed to me the biggest pop, the loudest the crowd got was for the Gerardo Parra double. So I don't know that that's fair to Schwarber, but I think that is reality here. The Nats that Sunday select the contract of Parra from AAA Rochester. He makes his 2021 Nats regular season debut. In this game, and right on cue, I mean, the kind of thing that you can only script, right? Gerardo Para, first plate appearance, laces a pinch, one out, opposite field double into the left field corner in a Nationals two run seventh inning to drive the Mets starter, Taiwan Walker, out of the game. The Nationals, who of course were robbed of a season after a World Series championship at Nats Park, are able to re- relive at least some of that with this moment from Para. Uh, it's so crazy how it worked out. It's not like Parra has been great since he came back, although big home run on Friday night. And, you know, we didn't even mention Juan Soto hit a couple of homers on Friday night, which was great to see. But I had that moment from Gerardo Par as my number two.
1: So I don't know, maybe I didn't do this in the correct spirit of what we're trying to do, but my number one moment is the combo baby shark double followed by the Schwarber third home run. Here's the 0-1.
3: Swing a fly ball, well hit left field. Back on this one, Smith toward the track, near the wall, and it's off the top of the wall, and gone! It's gone! He dikes it off the top of the wall for his third home run of the
1: day! Being here for that, it I, I sort of think of that all as this one groundswell of emotion in the crowd, and it was the first kind of bigger crowd after they were allowed to go to full capacity again. It wasn't a sellout, but it was like 29,000, something like that and they were into it from the moment he stepped to the plate. They do the baby shark chomp. He hits the double. The crowd goes nuts, and then moments later, Schwarber homers again, and the ballpark just exploded. So I sort of combined all that into one moment, that inning, I guess you could say it is, as my number one. That was the moment that you felt like, boy, things are starting to happen here, and there is some kind of intangible quality that Gerardo Parr and Baby Shark bring to this team Kyle Schwarber is on the greatest run of his life, and this team may actually turn this whole thing around, and this is going to be the game we remember and the moment we remember that helped turn it all around.
0: All right, and then number one for me, Jordy Mercer spitting up blood (laughs) in that (laughs) aforementioned 13-12 win at the Phillies on Wednesday afternoon, June 23rd. So the specifics of this, I know most of you remember this, but for those who maybe don't, Jordy Mercer in the game, He's in it as a pinch hitter. He ends up playing the field. Bottom of the ninth inning, he's playing second base. He commits an error, a two-out fielding error. He fails in an attempt at a backhanded stab of a JT Real Muto grounder. The ball came up, caught Mercer on the face, causing him to spit up blood. We saw the blood watching the game. The Nats had no bench players left other than the catcher, Jan Gomes. Davey Martinez, during his postgame presser, says that Mercer said in response to whether he would stay in the game, quote, I'm swallowing my blood. And then, again, in the kind of thing you could only script, Mercer has the final put-out of the game.
3: 2-1 pitch, swung on line drive, caught by Jordy Mercer in the hole
0: at second, and a curly W and a sweep of the two-game series. He catches the Brad Miller liner for the third out in the bottom of the ninth inning. This was the game in which Paolo Espino, got his first career save. This was a game in which the Nats overcame deficits of 5-0 in the fifth inning, 9-5 in the sixth inning, 12-11 in the ninth inning. This game was bonkers. This game happened on the 10-year anniversary of the Jim Riggleman resignation. This, to me, is the game of the season so far. Four hours, 19 minutes, 13-12 win at the Phillies. It feels like there are like 10 moments in this game you could have picked, but the visual of Jordy Mercer, of all people, spitting up blood And what was like a blood and guts kind of effort by the Nats to win that game, to restore hope of, you know what, this team does have the moxie and the gumption to do well this season. It may not always be pretty, but this team can succeed. We saw that on that day. We hopefully see it moving forward this season. We didn't see it on Friday night, but uh, I don't know that I'll ever forget that. Jordy Mercer spitting up blood. That was something else.
1: That was a crazy game. Like you said, that inning was remarkable. Like, you know, I, I went with the Espino save aspect of it, but obviously it doesn't happen if not for Jordy spitting up blood and staying out there making that catch. Let me just ask you this. On April 1st, if I had said to you that your number one highlight moment of the first half of the season would involve Jordy Mercer, <laughs> what, would you think that meant the season was going well or not well?
0: You know that's a great point, and I'm still not sure if this season is going well or not well because while the record isn't good, I'm still like, you know, I don't think this is really a bad team. There's just things about this team that aren't really good. I feel, honestly, Mark, we have more questions today about this team than we had going into the season, which is good for us for what we do, but maybe it's not so good for the ball club. We'll see.
1: Yeah, I don't know the answer to that either, uh, except to say everybody else in the NL East lost on Friday. The Mets lost. Phillies lost the Braves and Marlins split a doubleheader, I think, or was it Phillies and Marlins? I forget now. Anyways, they didn't lose any ground to anybody. So it could have been a lot worse. And, you know, on the one hand, you say, boy, that was an opportunity to gain ground, but at least they didn't lose ground. And as long as they don't lose ground, they're still going to believe that they're in this thing. And so until we get to July 30th and they are not uh, really a factor in this race, they're going to think of themselves as being competitive and they're going to think of themselves maybe as buyers. And we'll see how this all plays out. But these next two weeks, man, they got to start turning it on. They've got to start making up some ground. They've got to play better than this. The schedule will ease up after this weekend, but they got to find a way to win at least one of these games against the Padres.
0: Yeah, and what's funny, as horrible as Friday was, the silver lining may end up being the biggest development from a baseball standpoint, and that is Juan Soto looked excellent. Off the great performance in the home run derby, four for five, two homers, two singles, four RBI, Every ball he hit, he fe- it felt like he hit at like 100 plus miles per hour. You talk about barreling up. Soto barreled up on Friday night. And, you know, he owns Chris Paddock at this point with the way he's demolished Paddock on the season. But that might end up being like the thing from this game that actually matters the most from a baseball standpoint, that Juan Soto, he may have fixed the swing. Your theory may be true that he fixed the glitch by partaking in the home run derby.
1: If every instinct you've had has been wrong, then the opposite must be correct. Hello, my name is Juan. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents.
0: And he homered twice and had a four-hit game. The home runs being hit, that was Victoria in a diner. I'm Victoria, hi. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, you tell us what you think. We are here for you in good and in bad times. Uh, You can hit us up on Twitter, at Nats underscore chat. You can email us, Natschatpodcast.com at gmail.com. Get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
3: Here's the pitch. Soto swings, belts it high, deep to right center. Myers is back, looking up, going!
4: Section 241, the second deck in right center field with his 12th home run of the year.